Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Blokeology, evidence-based life and healthy skepticism. Okay, so on today's show, I'm incredibly fortunate um, and really pleased to be able to bring you an interview with Dr. Daniel Jolly. So Daniel's a researcher into the psychology of conspiracy theories, and um, we had a really great conversation chatting about conspiracy theories and very much how they're not just about the tinfoil hat wearing brigade. Of course, there are conspiracy theories out there which seem a bit kind of outlandish conspiracies about the moon landings being faked or Avril Lavigne not being um, a real person and having been replaced or um, conspiracy theories around the death of Princess Diana. But there are some incredibly important elements to conspiracy theories about how we engage with the world, how we make sense of large events. And it's really important that we're able to engage and recognize that we're all susceptible to some extent to these. And also how we engage about having discussions with people. Of course, people who oppose vaccines may have their own conspiracy theories, but it's incredibly important that we work out how to um, speak to people, how to engage with them, how to recognize, how to help, how to um, reduce the influence of perhaps conspiracy theories that can isolate the individuals that are involved, but also have a have wider health implications. So it's a really fascinating discussion, and it's quite a young area that Daniel has been heavily involved in researching, and there are loads of areas that they're going to go on and research in years to come as well. Uh, so on to that in just a moment. Just the usual quick thank you to everybody for getting in touch. Uh, and you can, of course, if you're just new to the show, welcome. Um, and the podcast obviously comes out every other Friday. And on the Friday in between, uh, the Journal of Blocology newsletter goes out, which is just a short email with some evidence-based snippets um, around health and life and fitness and whatever takes my fancy and kind of piques my interest around um, kind of uh, particularly around evidence, but just recognizing that we're all very fallible and trying to do this whole life thing a little bit better. Um, so um, bob along to the website if you want to sign up for that. That's at blocology.io uh, forward slash journal. Um, but otherwise, let's crack on with the interview with Dan for today. And so the first thing I asked him was just to tell us a little bit more about how he got into this fascinating niche around conspiracy theories. So I've been in this area probably nine, 10 to 10 years. I started back in my degree when I was thinking, okay, what can I do as my third year project? What is going to interest me for my final year at university? And there's a few ideas, and one of them was conspiracy theories. So obviously 10 years ago, there was no literature on this at all. It was just kind of an interest that I thought, well, that's kind of a weird belief. People always talk about Diana. So we're interested to understand why. So I did, I did my degree project on conspiracies. I then was so fascinated that I then stayed in the topic area for my master's, my PhD, I've then been outside my PhD four years and I'm still actively looking into the, the research area. So it seems to be that I kind of fell into it in a way that I was just trying to find interesting topics. And 
I came in at the time where there was no interest at all in it. And I've been able to kind of be sort of on the forefront of the research in this area because I came at the right time. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, and it required, you, you must have been interested in that because that's a lot of years of research. And usually a master's and a PhD cures people of their interest in a subject. Um, and those I know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it still kind of kept me today. Like, naturally, I'm interested in loads of different things. But this is one area that I've kept, I've, I've maintained because I've learned about the consequences in my research, so the, the dangers of conspiracies. So it's very much thinking about, okay, what other dangers are there and what can we do about it? So the yeah. PhD was about the dangers, whereas my research to date is how can we draw and intervene? So it's it's very much under the same umbrella, but kind of taking different focuses. I'm really looking forward to talking a bit about more about this. One thing I wanted to ask is, are you a, would you describe yourself as a sceptic? Because I know that you've talked to sceptic communities in the past. I, yeah, I would. I'm, I'm definitely interested by these these different types of conspiracies. I've come so immersed in those 10 years that I see them all as, as a research tool, I guess, now. But I definitely have that sceptical eye. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say definitely true, but I'll be like, okay, interesting. Interesting, yeah. very sceptical. Yeah, I think um, I've always I've always been in that sort of sceptical bracket, I think, though I've moved away from it at times because I've been anxious about how judgmental it can be sometimes. And this is why I think this really interests me, this topic as well, because I think it's one of those, some of the topics that we'll mention, some of the conspiracies are often related to health and mm. um, well-being, um, yeah. vaccinations we can come back to. But it's very easy just to be dismissive of them and go, and I think you described them in one of your videos as the, the tinfoil hat wearers, and yeah. just to be really quite derogatory. And actually understanding why people think those things, trying to engage with people, uh, that's, that's, it's, uh, it just strikes me mm. as an incredibly important way to go about, rather than just alienating a group and, uh, and labeling them as nutters. That's not really terribly helpful. I think the definitely tide is changing with that. I mean, definitely when I started, it was always that stereotype. It's the tin four brigade. It's for people who are paranoid, people who are on the out fringe of our society. And whenever we think of a conspiracy theorist, they would think of the tin four hat. So, but today, people have realised actually millions of people believe in conspiracies that it can't be explained by simply tinfoil hat wearers because that doesn't actually make sense in our society, but rather it's millions of people for everyday normal reasons. Naturally, some people who are paranoid will be likely to believe in conspiracies. That is, of course, true, but it doesn't explain everyone. That's just a small group of people. There's many other interesting explanations for why people believe in conspiracies. Yeah. So, um, First thing we should do is we should define it, I suppose. What what do you define as a conspiracy theory? So with the, with the definitions, you could we could probably have a whole podcast on how to define a conspiracy. <laughs> there are, of course, many different scholars interested in this area. So I'm a psychologist. I'm interested in the kind of human mind, what people believe in conspiracies. But there's other types of scholars. So people from historians, sociologists, who come in it as a very different focus. So the way I define a conspiracy is attempts to explain the ultimate causes of events as secret plots, so secret plots by powerful forces, so it could be perceived power, rather than explaining something as more overt, so more everyday, which is not necessarily the perfect definition, but it's one that I think has the key kind of ingredients, that it's someone acting in secret, and that someone is in a, in a group 
who are perceived to be powerful. So perceived to be, doesn't necessarily have to be that powerful, there's that I perceive them to be powerful. And this is what is the centre of all the conspiracy theories that we know. It's always based on blaming the government, blaming the pharmaceutical industry, blaming a group of people, for example, Jewish people, for the wrongdoings in our society, where it's them acting in secret for some ulterior motive. Yeah. So give us some examples. That's probably the best way to illustrate it. Good example. So, so uh, I mentioned there, so can we do vaccines mentioned a moment ago, where the idea that the data has been faked by the government or by the pharmaceutical industry for profit. So they're doing it in secret to try and make more money. The same with climate change, that the data that's saying climate change is happening, that the world's warming up, is all just a hoax for financial money, financial gain towards the government or some other entity. It came to do, of course, with Diana, a big popular conspiracy, that she was murdered by the royal family or the UK government, as opposed to being killed in an unfortunate car accident. And at the time we recorded this podcast, it's around the time of the 50th anniversary of the moon landings. So there's massive interest in those conspiracies where it's the idea that it was all a hoax we never went to the moon rather it was just filmed in a hollywood film studio but there are also conspiracies about groups of people it's not just events so some people believe that jewish people are involved in plots and schemes that they're involved in hollywood the banking industry and this is a conspiracy that's been around for a very 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 long time but there's th- theories like that. It's very, it's very wide ranging. Yeah, absolutely. Are there some? I can think of. You, you mentioned that lots of people have them. So a couple of questions. But the first one is: Are there sort of lesser conspiracy theories, if you like, where there aren't these kind of huge events, or are there things that more kind of, you know, without the kind of the really, you know, that kind of whole, you know, that the moon landing was fake thing. That's quite a big conspiracy theory to believe in. Are there kind of are there, are there a lower tier of them, if you like? There is a thing lower tier. So you probably, I'm sure you're aware of the idea that the, flat, that the earth is flat. That's a conspiracy that's believed by not as, as many people as the moon landing or vaccines, for example. You've also got more, some more of the wacky ones where they suggest that celebrities have been replaced by lookalikes. So for example, Paul McCartney and Avril Lavigne, so replaced by lookalikes to kind of keep making money in essence. The, the strangest one I've heard of is that Beyonce is a robot. Uh, to kind of push the elite. Of course, there's conspiracies based around the Illuminati, so that there's a secret world government, that the idea that that the Queen's a lizard, these are only believed by like 2% of the population. Whereas the idea... Two percent. That's quite a, a lot. lot in fairness. <laughs> yeah, there's like compared 60 million idea, people in the country. That's like well, still. True. true. But compared to the idea that JFK, for example, the US president was murdered by the government, 60 percent, if not more, believe in that conspiracy in America. So compared to that conspiracy, it's, it's not as it's wide known. But I take, <laughs> I take your point there that two percent is still quite a lot. <laughs> I've heard I've seen that Avril Levine one before, actually, which is just a slightly bizarre um it's like, definitely but the, yeah if, if, if you don't know it google it people are listening because you, you'll see people comparing images of these celebrities from like today versus two years ago and they're saying how different they look well i look so different to that you know two years apart but <laughs> but um yeah interesting interesting ones so let me ask uh, before we move on to a little bit more about it what are um have you got any conspiracy theories yourself you think you believe i'm not sure if you would call them a conspiracy theory if you believe them <laughs> 
I don't think so, actually. I, I back to that skeptical point. I don't think I haven't got none that stream to mind. I go, yes, I believe that. And more just like, okay, I I think I think I'm quite trust. I I am quite trustful of those around me. So I I I don't think the government would act in that way. And also, don't think they could. They think, for example, 9/11. The amount of people would be have to be involved to pull off that that you know event will be thousands of people so i just i just don't think it's practical in essence yeah so i just don't think that they could like knowing the government as, as we do i don't think they could do it <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah you uh, there might be um that's the kind of cock up and conspiracy kind of thing that uh the, i'm much more inclined to believe the, the government's incompetent rather than capable of conspiracies of that regard well, <laughs> yeah uh, unless that's part of the conspiracy in its own right they're trying to uh, clever it's like <laughs> a double bluff <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a wee bit about the psychology of it all. How, what what are some of the underpinnings? Like that's obviously your interest in it, and particularly um, uh, that that kind of the psychological reasons why people ad- ad- adopt or become um, are I guess susceptible, susceptible. Seems like slightly the wrong word because that suggests yeah. again that they're just being duped. But why? What are the sort of processes that are going on that lead people towards these conspiracy theories? Well, quite interesting, they don't seem to be specific in time. So it's not that people today, our society today, right now, is more prone to conspiratorial thinking versus 100 years ago. It seems to be that they kind of maintain popularity throughout the years. The biggest study that actually tested this, um, some researchers looked into 100,000 letters that were sent to the New York Times between 1890 and 2010. And what they found was well, there was no increase in conspiracy thinking in those letters. Remarkably, it stayed quite stable across those 120 years. So the internet sometimes is blamed for conspiracy, conspiracy theories, but in actual fact, there's no good solid evidence to suggest that the internet is fueling these conspiracies. What they could do with the internet is that they could make them more accessible for people who are already susceptible to believing in conspiracies. So it's not that the internet is what's making these conspiracies, it's just in essence polarizing people. It's making people who are already believers believe them in a more kind of um, easy way, easy accessible way. So those people could be, in essence, those trying to understand the world. It's not, well, for the majority, it's not that they're paranoid. It's that they want to, you know, feel certain in their society. They want to have knowledge for what is happening to in the world. They want to feel safe and secure. But what we find is that when there's a large event, we want to know what's happened, of course. But that large event can play into some biases in our mind, one being proportionality bias, where we assume that big events must be explained by something equally as big. So the death of a princess, for example, is a humongous event. To explain that as a simple accident doesn't maintain proportionality. But to explain that as a government conspiracy, well, that is a massive event. That, that explains what has happened. So in, our, in essence, we want to find out what has happened, but we are kind of um, fooled by this bias that we assume it must be something equally as big. Definitely when we're looking for this for this knowledge, it's been shown that those who have lower critical thinking abilities, skills, are more likely to believe in conspiracies. 
So when people are on the hunt for knowledge to find out what has happened, they may not be thinking through the evidence. They may be relying on the intuition, that feeling in your stomach maybe, rather than actually thinking about the evidence. Also, people want to say, as I say, to feel safe. So they want to understand what is happening in society to feel secure. What you find is that people who are anxious, who feel powerless, who feel under threat, are more likely to believe in conspiracies. Because potentially, at least um, immediately, conspiracies can make someone feel less anxious, more in more control, more less threatened. So in that moment of them wanting to understand the world, it can make them feel better. Because indeed, hearing that, you know, for example, the, a plane's gone missing or their, you know, a printer has, has died can make you feel quite anxious. So the conspiracy can actually make you feel better, at least temporarily. It can also be used to help you think about yourself and your group. So people use conspiracies potentially to blame others for their wrongdoings. So blaming, for example, Jewish people for bad things that happen in society as a way to maintain your own in-group, your own friends and community, because those are the bad people, we are the good ones. So together, in essence, it's just us trying to understand the world. It just can lead some people who may be assumed links between big events, big causes, who are feeling anxious, powerless, may fall into the trap of conspiracy theories. But with conspiracies, whilst they sound quite appealing, I definitely think I've told quite a nice story there about how appealing they could be. They're not necessarily satisfying. But if you then start looking into a conspiracy, that comes your belief. It can actually increase your mistrust in other people. It can actually make you feel more powerless over time. So whilst in the in the moment it may actually make 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 you feel better, you then start you, you then start thinking about other events, for example, that may have been you know conspired against by the government. It then increases you actually believing in other conspiracies. So in the moment, it can be quite appealing, but over the long term, it's not necessarily satisfying. Interesting. There's quite a few things. There. The, the, as you were describing that, I was thinking it's quite a paradox, isn't it? That initial that initial sense of it making you feel that you're making sense of the world, making you feel more secure. But you went on to describe there how that then obviously it leads to, it might make you more marginalized. If you're more anxious, you're more mistrustful. Yeah. You're going to have more difficulty with your relationships as well. Yeah. That could spill yeah. over yeah. into all other aspects of your life. And so there's, I suppose there's a real risk of people who believe in conspiracy biases. And I don't know if this is borne out in the evidence that do they become more marginalized? Do they become le less, you know, less, you know, they're less integrated into society with harmful effects on their health? Good question. So there has been links between those who are from disadvantaged groups believing in conspiracy theories to a higher extent, and also those who are ostracized, so those who are you know, on the eight fringes, are more likely to believe in conspiracies. I'm not sure what the cause and effect is, mm. i.e. is it that the conspiracy makes one feel more ostracized, or is it much more of a kind of bi-directional relationship where it may impact each other? My gut would tell me it's probably a bit of both. I imagine someone who's already feeling on the outside of society may be more likely to believe in conspiracies, which they may actually fuel them feeling more ostracized. So I think it could be bi-directional. Um, yeah. But there's definitely links between those those two things, absolutely. Yeah, certainly that'd be my instinct, that it probably goes both ways. But of course, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? That it's going to lead to increasing marginalisation, increasing ostracisation as well, isn't it? The, um, they're all going to feed on each other.
Definitely if you then also feel that this, a group is kind of out to get you, that you are, they're conspiring against you and those around you, and that you need to get back at them. So potentially it could immobilize you to, you know, want to have hatred, discrimination, potentially violence towards the group who you perceive to be part of the conspiracy. Where it all started by maybe just being exposed to the conspiracy online, just simple exposure, because we know that people being exposed to conspiracies, they're more likely to actually endorse them just because they've been exposed to them. Because it's the conspiracy can be so influential, can be so, you know, controversial, it gets our attention, it can be quite sticky. So once someone's exposed to a conspiracy, it can become their belief. And potentially, of course, those who are more susceptible, so more anxious, more, you know, more under threat at that moment, could take it on more than others. But it does seem to be that exposure in every day can be quite detrimental. So maybe in regards to the internet, the internet could play a role in that element. But because they're so more easily accessible, it can fuel conspiracies in that sense, um, which could be interesting to look into. Um, yeah. So I mean, many people would uh, immediately reach for the internet as being to blame for them. As, and I think you've already described, it sounds like it's an innate, um, it's something that's innate to us. The kind of the psychological biases like proportionality bias, as you described there, that we've all got within us. Um, and it's, I guess it's all because we're, you know, we're all just, we spend our life trying to make sense of the world. And it's why we get things wrong in terms of temporal relationships. You know, yeah. the, the bus comes yeah. and it starts raining and you link the two and, or, you know, ridiculous, yeah. that temporality kind of problem that we all experience yeah. all the time. It's just one yeah. of those biases, isn't it, that we all have? A good example is patent perception, because in the world, yeah. a complex place, in essence, it's all just a mixture of patterns. So we need to actually understand what these things mean. Language, ethnic around us, it's just it can come quite maladaptive. Well, we start, some people start to see patterns where they do not exist. So, for example, some research found that in a coin tossing, when someone's tossing a, t- tossing a coin, People who see a pattern in those coin tosses are more likely to believe in conspiracies. When in reality, there's no there's no pattern at all. The same with dots on a page. People who sometimes can see patterns in 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 dots where there's no pattern there at all are more likely to believe in conspiracies. So it's the idea that this pattern perception that we all have has come maladaptive for some people. So when they look at the event, they see things that are overlapping where actually they're just there by chance but people see intention behind it that's really interesting about the coin tossing one because if you're depending on your background if you've got that kind of rationality critical thinking analytical thing and you've done you know you understand the um probability side of it and i Mm. I guess most people would but actually there's really that kind of that's almost a really interesting it's a really interesting experiment that I don't know how they thought mm. about doing that. That you know that great. actually, if you're, you're yeah. it's almost like an extreme pattern recognizer kind of you know mm. type of person, a type that you know that an extreme pattern recognizer is much more inclined towards that because um, that would seem like crazy with almost like you know that's how could there be any pattern in coin tossing? But yet some people are clearly at, the, at that end of the spectrum, which is really interesting. It shows another bias that we have that everyone has to sometimes yeah. it can become maladaptive for some people which can then draw them into a conspiracy so when in a moment of them maybe feeling anxious when they when a big event happens they're more susceptible in that moment to endorse that conspiracy which can then spiral out to them you know feeling disengaged with society with other people etc cetera, etc cetera. 
I think the in-group thing that you mentioned there is really interesting as well. That that kind of that, and I know I guess it's social psychology is where you're at, really, isn't it? Is that this Absolutely, is, yeah. <laughs> is that in-group side of it is so important. And I, I'm, the more I look at it, I read Jonathan Haidt's book recently, The Righteous Mind, which, and I think he's a social psychologist by background, mm. um, and really about just an understanding of how challenging it all is. It is for us all to kind of get over this in-group kind of inbuilt in-group psychological biases we have within us conspiracy theory is one example but we we're just all becoming really entrenched in our own you know, we see this politically these days perhaps is the most obvious problem is that we're all getting entrenched in our own little groups and struggling to break out and speak to other people conspiracy theory is a really good example of that yeah what's interesting a scholar in america joe refers to conspiracy theorists as uh, conspiracy theories are losers not losers in the sense of a bad thing but rather when you're on the losing side of a political party you're more likely to believe in a conspiracy theory but then once you then win it then suddenly turns and the other party then believes in the conspiracy and you're like what you're on about so it seems to be you trying to understand what has happened to your group, your in-group, and to try and explain failure, in essence, it's, it's someone else. They're the bad people. They've made me fail. But yeah. then once you win, well, you've won because you're unright. So it, it, either it's that in-group and out-group. It's that trying to understand differences, that trying to you know, understand why, why your group's better than someone else's because the other group's conspiring. Um, which is yeah, yeah. quite dangerous um, you know, that's interesting because we definitely all do that and actually I was thinking oh, have I got any conspiracy theories and actually I think I have got one of my conspiracy theories might well be for, on the political side of things that actually I'm much more towards the left side of the political spectrum and I look at what's happening in the world these days and I'm horrified by that kind of neoliberal order mm. and the way that things are going and I probably regard that as a bit of a conspiracy I could definitely have some conspiracy theory angles to that that it's all just a plot from the very rich to maintain the, them being this is a highly simplistic but you know the very rich and they're all they're, they're manipulating the system in order to um, keep themselves in that position that's definitely it sounds like a conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so what we do find <laughs> is it can actually impact group relations so mm. some research we've, we've done we found that when people are exposed to the idea that Jewish people are conspiring but also in another study that immigrants are conspiring they're involving plots and schemes this can increase prejudice so negativity towards those groups of people so just being exposed to the idea that they're conspiring makes you dislike them to a higher extent it also can actually lead to discrimination, where we found that those who believed in, in conspiracies felt more negative towards Jewish people, which meant they didn't want to vote for a Jewish political candidate because of their Jewish ethnic origin, because the conspiracy was driving this. Also, what interestingly we found was that there was a generalizable effect. So those who exposed to Jewish conspiracies had more negativity towards Jewish people, but also more negativity towards a range of other groups. It can be towards different um, social groups, but also different classes. This is because we argued it's called attitude generalization, where one attitude towards one group generalizes to many other groups. So it's not just that the conspiracy can increase negativity towards the group at the target of that conspiracy, but it can actually generalize out to many, many different groups. Highlighting the, the real dangers of conspiracies. So it's not just impacting one group, but impacting many, many, many others who are not even part of the conspiracy. Yeah. Gosh, that's really interesting. And just, you know, 
I knew that had a wide-ranging effect, but the more you describe it, the the more terrifying it is. And, I, I, and it's almost the pointy end of some very serious barriers yeah. in society to mm-hmm. integration. Absolutely. Because we're staying in the, in the context of in-group and out-group, we've also found that those who believe in conspiracies are more likely to agree that violence towards the conspirator, for example, the government, is more acceptable. So... For example, we've seen in the news, like with Sandy Hook and many other conspiracies, that people actually go out to try and confront their personal group who they perceive part of a conspiracy. So in essence, it could be inciting violence towards those groups of people, where someone who believes the Jewish person is conspiring against them or against us, they want to get back at that Jewish person. They want to maybe actually um, protect themselves towards from that person. When actual fact is always a conspiracy, so it could actually mean that they are more violent towards this group of people just because of his conspiracy. Of course, there's many other reasons why someone may act in those ways. Of course, extremism is very complicated. But conspiracy theories where it puts someone as a bad person could actually fuel this violence, which is definitely an interesting area that, I mean, that I'm currently involved in. Is there, um, is there a case that you've not got quite the right name nomenclature with um, conspiracy theories? Because in many ways, certainly in terms of public perception, because the conspiracy theories, people often land on, you know, the fact that the moon landings were faked or Diana was killed mm-hmm. by the royal family or what the government or whatever it was. But mm-hmm. it, that almost distracts from a more important bit of your work, which is really about the kind of how we're integrating as a society. That's a very good point. I suppose all those conspiracies come back to the idea that you're mistrustful of of those in power. You're mistrustful of of information that is given by different gatekeepers. All those conspiracy theories are central to that. It's just that that central belief of mistrust can impact many different types of consequences. It can impair violence. It can impair you disengaging with vaccines, with climate science. It can in, in, you know, inspire you to be more negative towards other people. But of course, there are more humorous conspiracies. So, like you mentioned yeah. moon landing. In, in, if, we treat, if we treat that in its own right, just that by itself, that probably doesn't have any consequence. But then you think about the wider picture that that conspiracy may then actually breed mistrust in the government. You then may start thinking, okay, what, has the government, what else has the government been involved in? which then may mean you're more likely to believe that Sandy Hook, for example, was a false flag, i.e. that it wasn't real, that it was set up by the government for different motives, which means that you then may feel that you want to get back at the government for that reason. So it could it could lead to other unexpected consequences um, from your central belief. Yeah. So the big question is, we've got all these problems, and particularly, and the one I'm thinking, particularly the anti-vaxxers, vaccine, they're clearly got huge implications um, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, people's health and well-being. And how, how do we go about fixing this? How can we try to push things back in the, in, we assume that this is, we, we assume we'd like to push it back in that, away from conspiracy theories. How do we address them? I think that's a, <laughs> that is definitely a question, a million dollar question that, it's it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. It's, the first challenge I think is to try and think about the line because I don't. I think conspiracies have a place in our society, i.e., that people question those in authority, they question official explanations, they try and understand what is happening. That is something that mustn't disappear. It can't disappear. It's, it's part of you know our society, free speech, etc. 
The danger comes where conspiracies play a role in our society without us realising, where they change and they manipulate our viewpoints without us actually realising this is happening, where we're being exposed to conspiracies and taking them as truth just because they seem to be so influential. So it's thinking about the skill sets that we have to try and actually counteract those conspiracies. So research has found that those who are primed to think more analytically are less likely to believe in conspiracies. Those who feel more empowered are less likely to believe in conspiracies, which we know are some of the predictors of why people believe in conspiracies. So if we can deal with that, i.e. empowerment, making feel people feel more part of society, they're less likely to actually endorse that conspiracy. But it's very challenging because those have been lab experiments. It's thinking, okay, how can we do this on a more wide scale? What would it look like in, for example, a classroom? Would it be teaching people about different information sources, teaching people how things can be changed, thinking about, in essence, how to think more critically rather than relying on our gut? Could be one one way to do that. Of course, it can also be with counter arguments. So just giving people the facts. So saying, here's the facts about vaccines. Does that actually work? So in essence, it's called inoculation. This <laughs> seems to work quite well Ironically. with fake news in general. But with conspiracies, it's a little bit more challenging. What we found in some research is that if you tell someone vaccines are safe, you then expose them to a conspiracy that, had, that, hasn't, that doesn't have any effect. It seems to actually do the work the conspiracy has no effect on you so it seems to be all good if however you are exposed to the conspiracy first so vaccines are not safe they're for profit etc you're then told oh actually no vaccines are safe they've not been faked that actually doesn't actually can actually impact your intentions to want to vaccinate rather you don't want to vaccinate it seems to be that once you expose that conspiracy it comes in root in your belief system so even if you're told that vaccines are safe afterwards, there's no effect. It seems to actually stop you wanting to vaccinate. But if you're told first, as I say, that vaccines are safe and then exposed to the conspiracy, that's all good. If you knock out yourself against that, that conspiracy theory, kind of, you're giving yourself the tools to kind of fight back against the conspiracy. But the problem is most times the conspiracy comes first. Typically, we're thinking about the conspiracy and then the counter arguments where from this research it was shown that that actually isn't going to work because the conspiracy, once it's rooted, can be quite resistant. Potentially in vaccines, it could be quite useful because parents may not be exposed to anti-vaccine conspiracies until they become a parent, potentially. So maybe giving people counter-arguments to vaccines could be useful, you know, first. It just shows the challenges of conspiracies in if the conspiracy comes first, it can be quite resistant. Does it mean that it's it's definitely 100% can't reduce it? It's just that it adds a lot of challenge to getting it through. So indeed, teaching people skills of critical thinking to feel empowered may be kind of a more proactive way to deal with conspiracies as opposed to being reactive. Yeah. So that's one of the things you're looking at now. Any other areas that you're kind of looking at developing to try to help people, try to try to address conspiracy theories and all their impact? I think very much understanding how we instill those, those skills in young people. So all the work that I've talked about has been with adults. 
we actually know nothing at all about conspiracy beliefs in young people. So when I say young people, those under 18 years old. It's because one of the measures that we have of how someone believes in the conspiracies is only accessible to adults. We haven't got a questionnaire that is suitable for adolescents. So that's something that I'm currently working on at the moment is developing that measure where we have a series of questions that we know is suitable to, for example, a 14-year-old, so we can understand their belief in conspiracies. So that's something I'm working on, is trying to understand how we measure those conspiracies, and then think about, okay, if we want to intervene with conspiracies, how do we do that? Can we test some of these interventions in schools? Can we see if teaching people about critical thinking actually can reduce their belief in conspiracies in young people? So I think that's definitely an a, a area to be further understood is young people, because obviously they are our future, but we know nothing about their beliefs. It may be that they have the same beliefs as us. So, for example, they assume big events are explained by big causes. When they feel anxious, they feel uncertain, they're more likely to believe in conspiracies. That indeed could be the same predictors as for adults, or it could be something different. So it's worth filing that out. Gosh, it's a massive challenge. And I, I think yeah. there's an interesting thing that you say if as well, because there are some important benefits of people, not of conspiracy theories, but, you know, governments have lied to us in the past. <laughs> that, that's undoubtedly true. And um, they will probably lie to us in the future more than likely. Um, and so there are, you know, a conspiracy, perhaps the problem with conspiracy theories is that they are, they are arguably, there's a bit of a tacit assumption, implicit assumption that um, they are, um, they're not true. <laughs> in some ways mm -hmm. or you know they're, they're mm -hmm. unlikely to yeah. be true um but yeah. in fact actually the same critical thinkings and, and application and criticality and all that is needed to actually unpick the things which are true then they cease to be conspiracy Absolutely. they cease to be conspiracy theories at that point don't they indeed so once uh, there are a couple of examples where the conspiracy has been proven to have actually happened so it's no, no longer a conspiracy so when I think about instilling these skill sets, it's not that they're specific to conspiracy theories. It's rather that general skill set that can be used in many areas of life. It just may be also successful in tearing apart the conspiracy. So if it's truth, it, it will come out. If it's a conspiracy, you can actually evaluate that and be empowered to push back from it rather than just believe it because it sounds amazing. But rather think critically, does it fit that? Am I just believing this conspiracy because it fits that bias that I have, that I assume this big event has to be something equally as big? Think about those kind of those kind of um, biases in, when we are exposed to that information. But it's challenging. It's 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 not an easy task to do. It's that line and trying to work out what would work, and there's still lots of work to be done. Oh yeah, certainly. But I think there are there are there's a strong case that the the benefits, as you suggest, are much wider than conspiracy theories. You know, we're exposed to so much inf the information age. We're exposed to so much information constantly. We're now in this constant process of trying to sieve out what is useful, accurate. I do wonder whether there's a very strong case that we should be teaching children at a much younger age, certainly at least adolescents. Um, about these in, innate biases we have and how to start processing that information um, and recognizing what we're responding to and why we responded to it in certain ways, that kind of all those psychological elements of it. It's all tied in, isn't it? We could do with a, we could do yeah. with a bit of a revolution in terms of what we are um, putting to our, uh, um, our younger people. 
Absolutely. Um, it's something to be looked into. It's just, I suppose, with psychology of conspiracies in general, it's been about the adults. How do we ask adults? Because they're easy to they're easy to recruit, easy <laughs> to ask. Obviously, working with young people, it comes with challenges about their parent consent, etc. So it's there's lots of barriers. So I think researchers just haven't been able to get through those barriers yet. But we're certainly trying. So I think that's definitely a, a good avenue for research is to understand young people's beliefs. Well, I certainly think you've got a long career ahead. It's um, it's a very, as you say, it's a very young, it's a very young area still, isn't it, in terms of the research? So you've you've got plenty of work to go. <laughs> to There's still questions to. to be asked. Absolutely. There's still more to understand. What cultures, differences, uh, testing these things more longitudinally. A lot of research has been done just on a single time point, mm. rather than following someone through two, three, four years to see how their beliefs change. That could be really interesting as well. Uh, test questions about the internet. So I say there's no good evidence that the internet actually increases your belief in conspiracies. But it's good to test that, to test someone's ex- media exposure and their belief in conspiracies over a time period to really test that argument. We know from the past that conspiracies have been around for thousands of years, but what is the role of the internet? It's not been shown strongly either way. Uh, so there's, there's still loads of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Dan, that, that absolutely fascinating area, and you're obviously doing amazing work communicating this to people as well. Where can people find out a little bit more about um, all the things that you're doing, your work? Where I know you do regular speaking events and other things. Tell us a little bit more. So I'm on Twitter at Dr. Daniel Jolly. You can also look at my website at danieljolly.co.uk. That kind of has the, the best information for my blog, my my public engagement stuff. So it's kind of a good place to kind of go to be directed to other places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a really great website because it just leads on to so many. It's a, lo- a little rabbit hole. You can dive into this area of psychology and explore all sorts of different aspects of it. So um, highly recommended. Uh, Dan, it's been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.